Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second RQM Plus Live panel discussion of the year, MDCG 2023-7, New Clinical Evidence Pathways for Legacy and New Devices. My name is Stephen Bernanke, and today's agenda is pretty straightforward. I'll cover how you can get involved and ask questions. Uh, I'll introduce RQM Plus and today's exceptional panelists, and our discussion will take up the remainder of the time. Um, we'd really love to field your questions today more than anything. So if you have them, all you need to do is type them into the chat on the right side of the screen, uh, which we'll be monitoring. In fact, I'd encourage you to test the chat out right now if you're feeling adventurous. Uh, please feel free to introduce yourself if you'd like. Uh, your full name is great. Your role if you want to, even your company name if you'd like to. Uh, the more you use the chat today, the more this event becomes us talking with you instead of at you. So we definitely appreciate those of you who participate and ask questions. Um, as far as RQM Plus goes, uh, we are a global medtech service provider focused on accelerating compliance and market success. Through our unparalleled expertise and industry knowledge, we deliver specialized solutions and expedite the journey along the full product lifecycle for med device and IVD companies. From concept to commercialization and continuing through post-market. Um, you can learn a lot more about us at the same place you RSVP today, which is rqmplus.com. So on to today's esteemed panelists, the first of whom I'm gonna spend a little extra time on, and you'll see why. Uh, first up is Amy Smirthwaite, Senior Vice President of Scientific Affairs at RQM Plus. Amy leads the RQM Plus Intelligence and Innovation Team and was previously the Global Head of Clinical Compliance at BSI. While at BSI, Amy developed their original compl clinical compliance team and led clinical aspects of BSI's successful MDR designation. She has also contributed to numerous clinical and regulatory guidance documents and training and is on the advisory board for organizations such as CoreMD and Network of Orthopedic Registries of Europe and is also a member of several ISO standards committees, including subgroups involved in developing standards for clinical investigation and evaluation, risk management, and orthopedic implant testing. Um, it's worth elaborating that this is no ordinary panel for Amy. Uh, she actually identified a potentially critical misinterpretation of the requirements for equivalence under EUMDR a couple of years ago. Uh, she brought that to competent authority members of the MDCG Clinical Investigation and Evaluation Working Group, who agreed that guidance was required to correct it, and they formed the task force, which Amy served as an expert contributor to, and MDCG 2023-7 was then published in December of last year. Um, next up, the next panelist is Vice President of Global Regulatory Affairs, Jay Cuddy. Jay began at RQM Plus in February 2021, coming from BSI, where he spent seven years in CE marking technical and clinical leadership roles with specific expertise in cardiovascular product development. Jay's experience spans new product development, biomechanics, biomaterials, regulatory affairs, clinical strategy, clinical evaluations, and biological safety evaluations. Third up is John Gimbel, Vice President of Technical at RQM Plus. John is actively involved in, with overseeing the technical aspects of the clinical, post-market, and regulatory practices at RQM Plus. John has a PhD in mechanical engineering and over 20 years of device design, regulatory affairs, and clinical affairs experience. Finally, we have Bethany Chung, who's senior principal at RQM Plus. Bethany has a PhD in biomedical engineering and loves all things quantitative. Uh, she has more than 10 years of experience with medical devices in the clinical space. Uh, prior to joining the regulatory world, she was a clinical researcher at the National Institutes of Health, and she has spent the past five years in our clinical and post-market practice at RQM+. And lastly is our moderator, uh, Teresa Miles, who's the Vice President of Business Development 
Teresa has 30 years working in healthcare and 12 and a half spent with Arkham Plus. So with all that said, Teresa, uh, let's do this. You can get us started. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I do believe Amy may be having some technical difficulties, Steve. Unfortunately, she was going to try to call back in. Um, I wanted to begin today's discussion, and I'll point to my other panelists as well to see if they can jump in on the topic. But we do really want to set the stage, right? We always like to start from a foundation of understanding. So I'd like if Amy is on. If not, Jay, I'll probably point to you if that's okay. I'm sorry. Um, I'd like to set the stage for the audience. Can we just do a quick history lesson? How did we get here? What started all of this? And where are we today? Could you start us off, please? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> let's start before the MDR, right? We, we had MedDev 2.7.1 Rev4, which was truly intended to be a bridge from the MDD to the MDR. Rev4 essentially showed us that, look, requirements for equivalence are going to be significantly ramped up. And if, if, if the MDD was here, Rev4 was intended to get you to a level higher, and then the subsequent higher level was supposed to be the MDR. And then, lo and behold, came the MDR. The big interpretation was, if you ever wanted to pursue equivalence, you're going to need a contract. And that was the big refrain, apart from the fact that the requirements for clinical, technical, and biological equivalents had been significantly heightened. Say, for example, from a biological equivalent standpoint, you needed materials to be almost identical to be able to pursue equivalence. So given that scenario, everybody just interpreted that, okay, if we need to pursue equivalence in the EU, we're going to need a contract. Who's going to give us a contract, especially if it's claiming equivalence with another manufacturer's device? So that essentially became a no-go. And because of the fear of contracts, a lot of manufacturers basically put away a significant portion of their portfolio, which means EU gets deprived of a lot of significant devices due to what eventually turned out to be a misinterpretation. All right. So Amy was the first one who realized that this is a misinterpretation and that that need for a contract essentially applies to Article 61.5 and that for legacy devices, for wet devices, and in some conditions, even new devices, I see some questions coming to that effect, even new devices don't need a contract per the MDR. What Article 61, Clauses 4, the three indents in, in Clause 4, and uh, 61.6a and b, what they really say is that they lay out conditions for the need for clinical investigations. And the contract bit is sitting exclusively in um, Article 61.5. So it is this misinterpretation that MDCG 2023-7 aims to correct. And that is what we're, we're here to throw some more light on because what we realize is some of the more impactful, and I've talked about this in, in the introductory video as well, some of the more impactful conclusions from 2023-7 are still going missing. And <laughs> to my understanding, to my interpretation, that is because of the brevity that the guidance document is written in. To this end, I'd encourage everyone attending this call to download that handout. There are a couple of slides in the handout that really clarify this highly nuanced situation. So while I can't speak as eloquently as Amy perhaps would have on this particular item, 
what I want to set the stage with is that the whole need for contract versus clinical investigation and the mutually exclusiveness, so to speak, amongst the two is what this guidance document is really trying to get at. Contrary to what you may think, not every situation around equivalence needs a contract. Certainly not for legacy devices, certainly not for wet devices, certainly not for devices that are derived by way of a modification of devices that are currently already out there. Even for new devices, there are situations wherein you don't quite need a contract. And this goes back to the definition of adequate clinical data, Article 248, which also recognizes as data from equivalent devices as being part of sufficient clinical data. So that's how I would like to set the stage. Um, I, I would like to say one additional thing. It would have been great if, you know, if Amy was here. I hope you can still hear me. Amy, I want to say that, you know, really, while I wish the guidance was a tad more detailed to the point where one could readily appreciate the nuances, essentially much like the earlier versions of what eventually became 2023-7, I think some of the commentary that we have in our in our handouts would really help help clarify the nuanced, con uh, nuanced concepts. I know we'll have many examples to go through, so we'll go through all of that. But in all seriousness, Amy, flowers to you. And that's for single-handedly realizing this misinterpretation and then taking it up with the competent authorities. I've worked with you for years. I know how passionate you are about the space and your ability to see things through is commendable. So a very big thank you. I hope you're hearing this. <laughs> we hope she is too. Just so everyone knows, right? Technology is great when it works. Um, we're working with her in the background to try to get her back online. And I'm sure she'll join here in just a few minutes. Thank you, Jay. And, I, and sure. I'm sure she can listen back to this if she missed that section from you. And we all agree. Um, really, really humbled to have Amy on our team and leading this discussion, right? Leading this discussion for the industry. So you mentioned actually products that are impacted. Can we just, can we skip to that? Because um, I do think it's important for those people that are listening to understand if their products themselves are impacted. And I think, John and Bethany, you were going to set us up with a couple examples. Can we dig into that right now? Yeah. Um, so we've actually, you know, just since the guidance came out in December, um, we have worked on a handful of products that this would apply to. Um, so I do have a couple of examples, you know, for the privacy of our clients. They're, they're not the exact examples, but derived from the examples that we've actually dealt with in real life. Um, so the first example I want to talk about is, let's say we have a, a spinal disc, a prosthetic spinal disc. Let's say it's a legacy device. Um, it was CE marked under MDD but there's not sufficient clinical data on the device itself. The CE mark originally was based on clinical data from another one of the manufacturer's devices. So it claimed equivalence to another, another device from the same manufacturer, but they're different materials. So while that was not scrutinized as closely under MDD, it's now imperative under MDR that they be of the same materials. So that equivalence argument no longer holds up and we need to find more data for this device. So in this case, we're going to apply, I think this falls under case two in the guidance. So mm -hmm. if you're reading along in your MDR, this is article 61.6a. So let's check the boxes, right? Has this been lawfully placed on the market under the MDD? Yes, it has. 
Um, the next one, are there any common specifications for this device? No, there are no common specifications um, for prosthetic spinal discs. So given those, if there is another manufacturer's device that can claim equivalence to this one, then that clinical data can be leveraged for this device. So that's something that gives us a leg up now that maybe we didn't have a year ago when it was interpreted a different way. Um, and then another example that kind of touches on some of the other cases we have here. Um, imagine that you have a surgical clip. It's a new device. There's no clinical data on the device itself, not even any post-market data since this is a new device. Um, so let's see what our options are for this one. Um, the first thing we can look to perhaps is case one in the guidance, which refers to Article 61.4 in MDR. Um, so is this a modification of a device already put on the market by the same manufacturer? Let's say it is. So we have a yes for that one. Uh, is it equivalent to that already marketed device? Does it have the same material? Does it have the same design characteristics? Um, same indication, same site in the body? Let's say that it meets all of those. We can claim equivalence to another device by the same manufacturer. Does the equivalent device on the market have sufficient clinical evidence? So the device we're claiming equivalence to, is there enough evidence on that device? Um, let's say that that device was CE marked under MDD. It plans to be sunsetted. If we look at it under the scrutiny of the MDR, maybe a gap analysis using a clinical evidence matrix, it would show that, yeah, for the legacy device, we have clinical evidence on one of the three indications that it's used for. So we can't, we wouldn't have sufficient clinical evidence if we only used equivalence to that manufacturer's device. So case one helps, but it doesn't solve our problem fully. In that case, let's look at case three, which is Article 616B. Um, and this is for those well-established technologies. So a clip, a surgical clip is on the list of the wet devices. Um, are there common specifications for surgical clips that we need to comply with? No, there aren't right now. Is equivalent, so with those cases, we can then explore equivalence to another manufacturer's device. Um, so these, we're just giving more options here um, when we use these examples. You know, in connection with the wet situation, which is 616B, um, I urge manufacturers to be careful on this one because there is the whole regulatory wet. That's the suture staples, pins, wedges, connectors per Article 52.4. And then there is the more mature technologies or what's currently also known as clinical wet per MDCG 2020-6. So you got to be careful. Don't don't confuse the regulatory wet under the MDR with what is more standard of care clinical wet devices. Yeah, and maybe the other thing to add is um, I think there was a question in the chat about whether or not you need a contract for lower class devices, so class 2A. Uh, and the answer is this guidance only applies to implantables in class 3. And right. when you look at Article 61.4, it says for implantable in class 3 devices, you need to do a clinical investigation, and then it lists the exemptions. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And the nuanced part of it is that 
there is no requirement for a contract if you're doing the normal equivalents to to annex up is it 16 or 14 i always forget the the clinical evaluation one so it's there's no contract mentioned there it just means you need sufficient access and the ability to demonstrate equivalence so that's important to keep in mind and the only other thing to add on to what jay was saying is that you need to for the regulatory wet so those devices listed in Article 61.6b, you need to, that's basically the classification. So whenever you're submitting your initial application, you really need to talk to the notified body that you actually fall under those exemptions. And there's other implications of it, right, with implant cards and the way they do the the, the auditing. So just keep that in mind. So you just have to be clear that you are falling under those list of devices in order to leverage that uh, ex- exemption. Thank you. I think Amy's desperately trying Welcome to back, join Amy. this discussion. Is she back? Hello. Thank you. She is. I can see her. Yeah. I think so. Can you hear me? Yes, oh, we can. We can. Yay. Okay. <laughs> so I'm on my phone. It's the same internet connection that wasn't working on my computer. So I don't know how long this will last. But um, we and you guys are all it. worrying. You guys are all coming in and out. So fingers crossed this works. But I'll keep trying if I get kicked out again. We can hear you and we yeah. can see you clearly. So please, yeah. please okay. go ahead. Yeah. Yes, please. So Amy, we did, we did sit, Jay took over setting the stage a little bit. And then Bethany and John actually walked us through the products that are impacted. I know you wanted to talk a little bit more as well around actionable steps. I'm not sure where you want to try to pick up in the dialogue that you wanted to make sure that you shared, but I think you can go ahead and jump in and then we can go back to some audience questions afterwards, if that's okay. Okay. So yeah, I wish I'd, I wish I'd heard what had been said before. So you've talked about how the misinterpretation came about in the first place and how we discovered that it, you know, that, that it had been incorrectly uh, interpreted before. Um, I think in terms of actionable next steps, it depends on where you are. I'm, I'm keep, you guys keep worrying. So I don't know if you can still hear me. We can. <laughs> Go talking. Ahead. We okay. can hear you clearly. <laughs> so you can, obviously it's very clear that you can use it for legacy devices um, and wet devices. So, um, so the, the guidance is written in terms of when you do and don't need to do a clinical investigation for your class three or implantable device. Um, but really the, the, the critical thing that's kind of hidden in there is the fact that you don't need a contract to uh, use equivalence with another manufacturer's device in, in perhaps even the majority of cases, in many, many cases, for your class three and implantable devices, a contract is not required to claim equivalence with another manufacturer's device and therefore leverage their data in your clinical evaluation. And when you can use this, obviously it's very clear from the guidance that for legacy um, and wet devices, you never need a contract. You can just demonstrate equivalence the way you always, well, in accordance with the MDR, and then use that data in your clinical evaluation. But what might not also be that obvious, but it's it's very clear, especially if you read the fit footnotes. And I do recommend reading the footnotes because there's a lot of important information in there. Um, but even for a new device, say if you've got um, a new device and you are claiming equivalence with one of your own devices, you can still claim equivalence with another manufacturer's device without a contract because you're already you're you're still satisfying one of the requirements for that exemption from a clinical investigation. So if you've met all of the criteria in the three bullets of Article 61.4, then you're exempted from a clinical investigation and that requirement for a contract no longer applies. And it may seem like, oh, well, how is that going to be useful to me? Because I already ha- I have to be, um, you know, cl- have, be able to show equivalence with my device, but it could be used to beef up your clinical data 
And then also in the footnotes, it says that original device that of your own that you were claiming equivalence with, it could actually have data from another manufacturer device providing equivalence is adequately demonstrated. So you could actually have it with the original device that you're claiming equivalence with. Uh, and it also says, for example, if you've done a clinical investigation, then you could be using this data. So say you didn't meet any of the exemption criteria, you had to do clinical investigation, you could still use equivalence without a contract to supplement the data that you got from doing your clinical investigation. And similarly, even in the case where you do have that elusive contract, you could claim equivalence with two, three, four other manufacturers and use it to bolster that data set, although the guidance is very clear that it can only be within the same intended purpose. So there's a lot of different ways this can be used. It's not just for legacy and wet devices, although that's the most straightforward. There's lots of ways that it can help you to maintain your indications and maintain your devices on the market and get even new devices on the market. And I'm seeing you all worrying, and I'm really hoping I didn't get cut off. You're doing fine. No, we fine. heard everything. Yeah, yep. you just keep, yeah that, that was perfect. Thank you. Did anyone want to comment back to what Amy just shared, or can we jump into some questions? There, everyone's doing a great job posting questions in the midst of all of this as well. And I think we've already covered a few of them. Right. Um, I know Dennis was asking for an example of what he needs exactly, right, to claim equivalence. I think we've touched on that pretty well already. We do have the examples that Bethany provided. Um, I don't know if we have any examples in our handouts. I'm not sure if we have anything there that people can pull on, but please know you can reach out to any of us and we can certainly have a conversation with you. Um, one question that came in, it's quite lengthy, but I'm going to go ahead and read it and maybe we can jump into this question. It was a question posed to us actually prior to the session. This person is, at, is saying, we know that the MDCG 2023-7 lists exemptions for clinical investigations for class three and implantable de devices, but also mm -hmm. notes in appendix one of the guidance and considerations for case one, specifically that if clinical investigations are not mandatory, the PMCF must include studies to demonstrate safety and performance of devices under evaluation. Mm -hmm. And the question is, if a class three implantable device has sufficient level four peer reviewed scientific literature to cover all indications and populations mm -hmm. is not life sustaining and has low sales volume, would you expect the PMCF studies to be at a minimum level for evidence or higher per appendix three of MDCG 2020-6? Or could the interpretation of appropriate PMCF plans and post-market studies include lower levels of evidence, such as level eight proactive PMS surveys? Whew. All right. That sounds I'm tired like something. That. <laughs> that sounds like something I would write, but anyway. question, <laughs> <laughs> Jay. Uh, well, <laughs> okay, so I, I heard case one. I, I think I've, I've got the cornerstones of the question, at least. So since since the manufacturer mentioned case one, I'm going to assume that this is this is a modification of you know an older generation device, and they clearly mentioned that they're going to be relying on peer-reviewed publication data that's that's already out there. So the assumption is yes you have sufficient clinical evidence on the device with which you are claiming equivalence and you're coming out with a device modification which means the answer to your question is yes you will need a pmcf plan that is capable of generating level 4 data for this class 3 or implantable even though it's not a life sustaining device so that's straight off the bat secondly this is a question that many manufacturers 
will likely be considering. You know, they may have generated level four data for that initial round of MDR submissions, and now they're thinking, hmm, can we query the CMS database, or can we can we look at some other most more cost-effective mechanisms and still come up with data? The answer to all of that is yes, you can, but the trick is you still need to be able to satisfy the objectives that are currently in your CER. And most likely that's going to need level four data because you have your safety and performance objectives. Performance objectives for a lot of these devices tend to be technical success. And I'm not sure how you can get to that through a simple user survey, which takes you back to the very initial days of the MDR that reviewers very surely frowned upon. I know that for a fact because I was one of them. Now, so that's one thing to bear in mind. So where you need level four data, please do not downgrade and try to get level eight data because that's you're, you're going to run into trouble there. One, two, you may not be able to satisfy the objectives that are currently in your CER. So that's something to bear in mind. I think, I think once again, to respond to that question, if you are pursuing equivalence, yes, for a class three or an implantable device, you're still going to need a PMCF plan that's capable of generating level four data. Okay, very good. Anyone else want to comment? We're getting a couple actually really good questions again, so I want to keep going. Okay. Um, Stephanie is asking, what if the device claiming equivalence to was CE marked under MDD, but now has had CE mark removed and is no longer CE marked and, and or was already removed from the market due to sunsetting? So she's saying she's apologizing if we already covered this. But I don't think we talked about this nuance. Can we can we clarify that for her, please? So this is this is claiming equivalence with another manufacturer's device, right? And the MDR clearly says that you have to discuss the basically the regulatory status. That is, the notified body has to find the clinical evaluation of that other device with which equivalence has been claimed to be acceptable. Even previously, there have been attempts made by manufacturers before before the whole transition timeline was extended and everything. Manufacturers had made attempts at claiming equivalence with devices whose CE certificates had expired. And the big challenge there is, was it sunsetted due to business reasons? Was it sunsetted due to safety concerns? We don't really know that. So that I would, if you come to me for recommendation, I would say do not pursue it because that is definitely high risk because there's a lot going on there in the background. One of the basic things the notified body wants to understand is that, hey, this other device that you're claiming equivalence with, you you understand that device well, not just in terms of you know what materials are involved in making it and everything, but in terms of how it's actually doing out there. So if, if that device is not going to be out there, there isn't going to be any follow-up data available on that. And who knows, there may have been safety reasons associated with it. On the face of it, it may have been couched as a business decision, but whoever knows what's going on. That is definitely a very high-risk strategy, one that I don't think any one of us could recommend. I think that's excellent advice. Anyone else, Amy, John, you want to comment? I think that was excellent, Jay. Thank you. Yeah, I do want to just add to that, that, you know, if this was sunsetted a number of years ago, the information we're getting, the data that we're getting is maybe not, you know, from a clinical setting that's standard of care today. So while we do want, you know, for the subject device, for the device under evaluation, we do want the full history of clinical data. But if all of that data are old, then there is going to be a little bit of a mismatch when you try to compare it to the state of the art right now. 
And the only thing I would add to that is, is, is if it is a, if it's a, if it's something that you did want to pursue, it might be worth just having a discussion with your notified body because even as much as notified bodies try and be consistent, there are some differences between between them, and some might be more amenable to that than others. Particularly if it was something that was done for business reasons, and now the the climate is a, is a bit better. If it was a well performing device, it may be worth and. One other point that may be of interest is there's another work package uh, to look at the, all the different MDCG guidances on clinical evaluation, including equivalence, including like um, clinical data, and make sure that they're all consistent with each other and giving the same messages. So there might be further guidance forthcoming on that. Very good. Wonderful. We're getting fantastic questions. So thank you, audience. Keep them coming. Jasmine, actually, um, I think this this is another very interesting one. She's asking, do you all, do you have already experienced claiming equivalence to several manufacturers and thus various medical devices to demonstrate compliance with the GSPRs of Annex 1 of the MDR? She goes on to say, how does this work in practice? Product A will support claim A. Product B will, will support claim B and so on. She's sharing it's difficult to imagine that this is going to be accepted by the notified bodies. Anyone want to you take You definitely that? can't do what we used to call uh, create Franken-implants. You know, you can't say, oh, it's the same material of this and it's the same design as that and it's the same clinical indications as the other one. Every device that you claim equivalence with must meet all three um, equivalence criteria. And I think in the past, you know, a, a reason why you wouldn't have claimed equivalence with multiple devices if you genuinely were the same as, say, three or four different devices is just it's a lot of work to, to, to do that for from, from multiple devices and then gather all the data and analyze it. And why would you do it if you didn't need to? But I think now with the specificity on indications, it, it you know, may be more worthwhile because if you've got um, same same design, same intended purpose, um, and uh, you know, same all, all the same sort of things, and you can genuinely demonstrate equivalence with the different devices. It may be that you've got overlapping data sets that, when you build them together, uh, create a stronger case. I hope that answered the question. <laughs> you know, in practice, just to add real quick to that, Amy, in practice, I'm not really seeing too many devices where Frankenstein of equivalence is going on. I've had a few strategy conversations where this frequently comes up in light of multiple indications, but when the rubber meets the road, it just makes things a lot more difficult, especially from a biological equivalent standpoint. So in practice, I'm not seeing too much of multiple devices uh, clubbed under the equivalence uh, banner. John, Bethany, what's what's your, what's your well, view on this? I, I guess I kind of maybe... I don't know if they were necessarily recommending or suggesting Franken equivalents, but I do think that it is a fair question to say, like, is this working in practice? And it's a fairly new guidance. And also the notified bodies have historically evaluated such that you need a contract, right? So yeah. I think it's a fair question. We do have some experience. It seems to be getting positive kind of um, acceptance by the notified bodies, but I definitely would suggest talking to the notified body before pursuing this uh, like path, just so you have some understanding where they're coming from and what their current thought uh, is on it. But it is in the guidance, and this is definitely something that, in theory, they should be willing to accept. Um, and if not, they should have a good reason for not accepting it. Well to be fair, it, it's always been the case that you could claim equivalence with yeah, more right. than one device, right. even under right. MDT. Yeah. Um, but it, the, the thing that, and it's still the case now that you can't do this Franken 
Steining. Well, that hasn't changed. Plants. Yeah, that hasn't changed either. So, yeah. it, it, but it does explicitly say in the case where a clothes is claimed with more than one device, so it calls it out as, as a specific case. And once again, the requirements around equivalence haven't changed. That's all the same, right? You have, even if you're claiming equivalence with five devices, you have to be wholly equivalent to each one of those five. Exactly. Even yeah. if it is that you're taking one indication from each of these five devices, from a clinical, technical, biological standpoint, you have to be wholly equivalent. That's where clinical equivalence becomes really tricky. Um, you know, not all the indications may be the same all across the board, but yeah, anyway, none of that has changed just to be, just to be clear. That's, that's a great clarification actually, because Jess just asked a question and so did T and I think it's along that same line. Several people are asking if the devices are in the same family, mm -hmm. materials are very slightly different. Is it still <laughs> the correct assumption? We cannot claim equivalence between these devices due to the difference in biological characteristics. Several people are asking about this product family notion and how do you, how can you claim equivalence across that when there are these differences? You know, this is, man, this is a very nuanced conversation. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm willing to have a one-on-one -on -one maybe after if we need to get into the depths of it. Because one, what do you really mean by product family? Say, for example, you could have a guide wire product family, right? But there are some peripheral guide wires and there are some coronary guide wires. And they probably vary a little bit in terms of um, column strength. And because, and in order to give you a different column strength, or for that matter, even a guide catheter, you need slightly different materials. Now, at this point, you can say a guide wire is a guide wire, but you're not going to be able to claim equivalence from, for something that is intended to be functioning in the peripheral vasculature uh, relative to that that's going to be in the coronary vasculature, right? Because you, while you may you think about your clinical risk and your anatomic risk, they're not always identical. So this whole notion of you know, the product being within the same family, I get it from a manufacturer's perspective, but there is a lot more to that as opposed to how you you plan on categorizing your devices. Now, if everything's identical and if you're up against a situation where it's your own device and there's a slight difference in material, say difference in durometer of PBACs or one type of nylon to another type of nylon, those you can reconcile by way of chem characterization testing, and I'm sure you can demonstrate that to your notified body adequately. But if you're going from a stiff polymer to a metal, that's going to be really difficult. And it's going to consequently going to make it very difficult for you to leverage the performance objective related technical success type of clinical data. So while I get the point that product family may be the same, but there are a lot of other aspects that go into your equivalence related consideration. Once again, if it's a product within your own portfolio, like the question says. And if all other things are identical and your only difference is within the same material, I can confidently say that you can tide over that through comparative chem characterization testing. But if the difference is across different materials, then there's a lot more consideration to be had. Short answer, Jess, it depends, right? <laughs> Actually, T um, asked the same, it was, uh, along the same lines, asking about to make that technical equivalence to another manufacturer's device. Mm -hmm. um, you know, generally, is benchtop testing data needed or could engineering rationale suffice? And I think that's what you're trying to get at, Jay. It's yeah. really a story, and you have to be able to connect all of that story with appropriate data, right? Yeah. Whether it's yours or the manufacturer's. Right. Okay. Very good. We're getting such good questions. I'm having a hard time keeping up here, guys. Great job. 
Let me slide back up here. We have a question actually from LinkedIn. Let's see. Oh, this is good. Actually, we're getting a lot of questions around registries, data registries, which I think is going to be a great topic, but also PMCF studies. So someone from LinkedIn asked, where does PMCF studies required for new devices? Um, will it be after submission and ongoing process? And what are really significant changes from MDD to MDR? Teresa, not what is, is the is question totally, in there? Yeah, the sentence is incomplete. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, well, let, let me let me let me give you some commentary on that. Since okay, the word PMCF is in there, right? This yeah. is very interesting. So the connotation around PMCF has changed, going from the MDD to the MDR. I'm I'm sure everyone's aware of this, but if there are a couple, in 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 under the MDD, PMCF was referred to as more of a proactive activity, right? Come to the MDR, the whole bucket of you know general and specific activities, that nomenclature has changed. Reactive, proactive, that's gone. So now you have general and specific. They all fall under PMCF. Okay? So that's there is that one change when it comes to nomenclature going from the MDD to the MDR. Other than that, in terms of how registries are viewed from a post-market perspective, nothing's really changed. I think there was a question in here in terms of when is level three data producing registry preferable to level four data producing retrospective uh, studies? It really mm -hmm. depends. Say, for example, should I have said that? It really depends. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, if it's if it's an implantable device. That's my device. favorite answer. I don't I, know uh, sorry, yours. sorry, <laughs> sorry to steal your. Yeah, but anyway, you know, if you if you have a an implantable device, right? The need for post-market studies is to is to continually demonstrate and confirm the safety and performance of your device across the lifetime of the device, right? And to unearth any emerging hazards that you may see later on. A level four data producing retrospective chart review, let's call it, right? That is basically a snapshot in time. You ask a, you ask a bunch of questions through a well-designed um, survey, let's say, right questionnaire and you get responses from a from a physician on how a patient did at a particular point in time it's just a snapshot in time whereas a registry can give you data continually over the lifetime of the device like for example there are certain registries in sweden and some of the some of the other scandinavian countries where even if you if you do a peripheral intervention using a drug coated balloon that's a transient use device right not even an implantable you have a transient use device, but these registries in some of these Scandinavian countries follow the patient through the lifetime of the patient. So if there is a crazy mortality signal at the four-year time point or something like that, these registries will catch that. A level four you know, type survey type of an approach won't let you get that because following up the same patient over time becomes really difficult because you have to address concerns with selection and all of that. So registries and, and uh, surveys, so to speak, are intended at different purposes. One is more lifetime getting data on the same patient population over time across the lifetime of the patient as well as the device, whereas the other, you know, the so-called survey is more a snapshot in time. I think as well, you know, what I'd add to that is you need to think about what do I need to show? What, you know, where, 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 what is needed in the post-market you know, in, in the post-market phase? Are you needing to, for example, corroborate equivalence? Um, you know, you, that, 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 that your, your device is, you know, actually getting the same 
as, as the equivalent device? Is it just you need a larger real-world data set? Is it that you need to a particular focus on some risk areas? Whatever it is, you need to look at what actually you're trying to show with your PMCF and then choose the appropriate study design. So it's not as simple as, oh, is it level four, is it level three, et cetera. It's really aligned to what you're trying to show um, for that device. Excellent. We do like to give really practical examples, and that was helpful. Bethany did that earlier. Anna was actually asking, you know, really, what's the reality of being able to get um, data without the contract? So I think people saw the contract as being the way to request data from another manufacturer. Can we walk through just from, is it public data that's available? How do, how would one walk through trying to find data on a, on a device that they believe to be equivalent without having a contract with the manufacturer? I would just go to interject there. They always did it without a contract under MDD. So right, <laughs> it, right. it's quite clearly possible, but carry on with the, the examples. <laughs> No, that's good. I think keep going because I think she's asking, I, you know, for her, she's asking, is that even a reality to be able to do it without a contract? So maybe Absolutely. let's talk about that. It is. Let's it is definitely a reality. Yes. yes. There's, I mean, you can rely on publicly available information. You can um, you can actually get a, an example, a, a, you know, one of your manufacturer's devices and try and reverse engineer it. You can do comparative testing. There's a whole bunch of different ways that are listed in, in Appendix 3. Um, of of 2023-7. So there's lots of different ways you can do it. And I guess the, you know, the, the critical thing is what is the potential for unknowns depending on how you've accessed that data required to establish equivalence and what are the weaknesses there and what could be the, the impact on your ability to make inferences about the clinical evidence. So the example I, I like to give is, say you had a bone void filler and I'm just making things up, but say you knew that um, if you've got a bone void filler and it's got anywhere between 40 and 50% tricalcium phosphate, you know that they all perform exactly the same way. Um, and say then you, you, you are basing on public information that your equivalent device has got 45%. Well, if you, you know, if they changed it slightly and it's 2% 2, 2 less now, it's still going to have the same clinical results. So it's not having a critical impact on the conclusions about your clinical evidence. But if that uncertainty is so great that actually you don't know if it falls within the range where they all perform the same, then that impacts your the, the confidence that you have in the, in the data that you're using for your device. And so you would need a higher level of access to have greater confidence in the, in the, in the equivalence between the two devices. And I think, you know, for more novel, um, more higher actual risk devices, there may be a desire to see something more like comparative testing um, before it's considered you've got sufficient access to the data. Excellent. I actually wanted to clarify, um, you know, what, what hasn't changed? I know we're talking about all the changes. What do we think hasn't changed for the, for everyone listening? What do we have to clarify for people that is same old, same business? <laughs> New day. What hasn't changed? Well, I'll start. How about that? Okay, you go. You go. <laughs> no, I'll at least start. So, so the need for sufficient clinical evidence in your CER has not changed. Whether you pursue equivalence and you're able to, you know, fill out clinical, technical, and biological to the best of your ability, sometimes you pursue equivalence. You can do all of that, but you know what? The device with which you're claiming equivalence doesn't have any clinical data. 
in that case, equivalence is pointless. So that's one thing. The need for sufficient clinical data is hasn't gone away. That stays. Secondly, um, the need for demonstrating clinical, technical, and biological equivalence per the MDR, per MDCG 2020-5 has not changed, right? The EU's approach to Frankensteining equivalence, wherein you say, hey, one material from one device, another material from another device, a third material from the third device, so it's equivalent to all three. That's not happening. That hasn't changed either. You can have, you can claim equivalence with multiple devices, but you have to be wholly equivalent with every one of those devices. Those are some of the basics that I just want to reiterate in terms of what has not changed. No, thank you. Anyone else want to comment on that? That's a good. tiny little comment, just because it stimulated a thought for me when Jay was speaking. Also, the, the idea that if you claim you, there's something novel about your device, it's going to be very difficult to claim equivalence with another device, because how can your device be novel if it's just equivalent to something else that's already on the market? A small point, but worth making. <laughs> no, very good. Actually, Pete was asking about the notified bodies. Are they actually accepting this new interpretation? So this guidance document that came, are they... Have you had experience of them embracing it, agreeing with it, disagreeing with it? Anyone? I haven't myself. I didn't know. We actually had a meeting with a notified body uh, about two weeks ago or so, um, and they were fully accepting of it. There was no questions asked. Um, so, so, yeah, we've had pretty positive feedback when we've tried this, you know, in the last month or two. Actually, that reminds me, I have been on one where we discussed this equivalence with a notified body, and it was the same thing. They were fully supportive. But, you know, it's still fairly early, but I, I would say this is, in fact, the correct legal interpretation. I've spoken to lawyers and, you know, they've explained that wording. It's that, that wording that actually tells you that that Article 61.5 is a standalone clause. It does not it does not overarch into the other clauses. So, right. you know, and this um, guidance document is is clarifying the intent and, and how it should be applied. So I think it'd be very difficult for a notified body to argue against something which is a correct legal interpretation and which has been clarified in, in, a, in a guidance document. I know there's that disclaimer at the front that this is not a legal document, but in fact, if you were to pursue it through legal avenue, you would get the, I think, you know, you'd get the agreement on a, on a, from a legal perspective on that. And the fact is that, you know, the, the, the competent authorities did decide to write this guidance to make sure that it was very clear. You know, to think about it, and I'm putting my reviewer hat on, which is three years old at this point, but <laughs> anyway. Um, the heightened requirements around equivalence was very welcome to notified body reviewers, right? When I was at the notified body, I truly disliked equivalence because it was used and abused, right? <laughs> they would just point to two things that, looked like dogs and they were all equivalent, <laughs> literally. I mean, one could be a terrier, one could be another dachshund, but they were all equivalent. And when this came, reviewers heaved a sigh of relief. So the first time any reviewer reads this document, they're not going to like it. That's just reality, right? They're not going to like it. But this has been discussed multiple times. Not all. I've had some, I've actually had a couple of reviewers say thank you to me and they're really really happy for the Which guidance. But I, 
But that, I know you. I know you're great. right. I know it was hated. It was. Hated, but carry on. I didn't no, mean I, to I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> why, that. Jay? I'm glad you. Go, no, no. Go here's ahead, the thing. Jay. It's really good, right? So why? <laughs> why would a Why would a reviewer not? I I totally get what you're saying that the the prior requirements, right, mm-hmm. really pushed the mm-hmm. the the fact that oftentimes medical device manufacturers, again, to your point, did not have appropriate data yeah. to point to. Yeah. So well, that they tried to there. have an apple and an orange and say they're both fruits. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like your apple and orange example better than the two dogs. <laughs> I like the mind, dog but... one myself. <laughs> <laughs> but no, here's the thing. And Amy, I'm, I'm glad you said that because there's obviously that subset as well, right? I know the first time you and I talked about it, I didn't like it. Right, so that, that, that's that's I where I was. I still remember the look on your face. Right, know? I was, I was, I was terrified because I'm thinking, <laughs> my goodness, we're going to come back to the same situation where equivalence is going to get used and abused. But that's not the case. Where the guidance ultimately is, there has been so much care and thought and meticulous approach applied to it. That's not where the guidance is. It's going back to the basics in terms of clarifying when you need a contract and when you don't need clinical investigations and. That distinction wasn't there in the past. Like, for example, and in the course of this conversation itself, let me go to some of the burning questions, which would be, I have a new device that's coming that I'm coming out with on the market. Do I need to have a contract with another manufacturer if I want to pursue equivalence? Right? That's one of the basic questions that comes yeah. up. If your device is, let's say, not a modification of what's already been out there, it's just a brand new device, you have nothing to fall upon and you are just pointing to another manufacturer's um, device to say, I'm equivalent with that. At this point, do I need a contract? Amy, my guess is, yes, you need a contract in this situation because it's a freestanding new device, no previous history in terms of the manufacturer having a previous generation device, having claimed equivalent with this other manufacturer's device. You're just coming out brand new and you want to claim equivalence with this new device. Um, At that point, my understanding is that you do need a contract. I'd really like to hear from you. Unless you've done a clinical investigation that meets the criteria that are laid out in MDCG 2023-7. Otherwise, yeah, you would need the contract. But it also says you could be claiming equivalence with multiple different devices and you only need a contract with one of those manufacturers. Mm -hmm. However, as I've kind of said before, that doesn't actually help you a huge amount because you can only use the data for the things that are covered by the contract so it's got to be the same indications you couldn't use that to expand your indications beyond whatever is in the one where you have the contract with the manufacturer but i think this is actually one of the really helpful things we always said oh nobody's ever going to have a contract but there is that subset of what we used to call own brand labeling and i was hearing from some manufacturers that were in that kind of own brand labeling sort of situation Mm -hmm. of saying well i know that You know, my um, device is essentially identical because it's not exactly, forget I said on brand labeling, but it's where, you know, we all use, we all buy our device from the same supplier. It's the identical device, um, but they haven't C-marked it themselves. So I can't have a contract with them because they haven't got the C-mark with them. And they were viewing that as a huge headache. And this now kind of makes that a lot easier to, to, to pursue. So. But I'd imagine in that case, you're, you're managing them through your, you know, so-called supplier quality agreements anyway. So you should you should have access to documentation and you should have say in all things related to but risk management and so on. It, if they haven't C-marked it themselves, so they're just a supplier that makes the same thing for multiple. Sorry, I went down a bit of a track there. Forget I said that. Anyway, anyway, I want to I want to bring up another scenario actually. So it's a scenario where 
I'm going to use the term predicate device knowing fully well it's not an EU term, but just to facilitate the discussion. Okay, so we have a predicate device um, that may or may not be CMARC, and then we have the OG, which is you know the original device that was a legacy device, and I'm coming up with a Gen 2, which is a modification of my original device, right? Now, the original device claimed equivalence with the predicate device. Can my Gen 2 device still claim equivalence through my original device to the predicate device? A lot of manufacturers are going to be in this situation. My guess, it, go ahead. My guess is yes, but yeah, go ahead. Without no, a contract. Yeah. In fact, it says that explicitly. It's in one of the footnotes. Unfortunately, because my computer has died, I can't tell you which footnote it's in. But it does say explicitly in the guidance that the original device can include data from any of the sources that are called clinical data in Article 248, and a contract is not required. That's it. That's an excellent example. I'm, I hope everyone caught that for sure. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a fantastic clarity. Can we talk a little bit about the timing of this guidance? I, you know, we know we have clients who have taken products from the market. It's too late. Is it too? Is it truly too late no, for no, most it, products? It, it's is it, better is late it, than is, never. Is this all too little, too late? Like what? Let's talk no, about no. that because it's I reality. It, it right? should have. It should have come out two years ago. Honestly, since since the time Amy unearthed it, but. It is definitely late because you talk to a lot of the really large manufacturers and they give you numbers like 20% of their portfolio has been shelved, right? That's huge. That's a big number. But with the transition timeframe having extended, I think there is, there is still scope for manufacturers to revisit some of their strategic decisions. But the only thing that they have to really bear in mind there is that you have to update your MDR application before May 2024. So that's that's an important point to bear in mind if you have a strategic dis, um, decision to revisit um, what aspects of your portfolio get back onto the market based on based on this contract versus clinical investigation situation. So yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Okay, May twenty twenty four. That's yeah. Soon. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that's soon. Um, we are and nearing. Can I just add to that? Yeah, go ahead, Bethany, I, go ahead. I also don't want to forget about new devices. So mm -hmm. this is still applicable and will be applicable far into the future. Yes. For those new yes. devices that are, you know, design changes from old devices or that are uh, wet devices. So anything on that list. So, you know, this isn't a guidance that you know, is good until the extension is up and then we kind of forget about it. It's going to be used far into the future as well. Excellent point, Bethany. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Actually, Bethany, that's a great that's a great segue. I do want to think we need to start wrapping up, but you guys know I love take-home messages or take-home action items. So let's talk to someone that's in the audience right now and they've got to figure out how to go back and look at their portfolio and leverage the data that they have, leverage the data that obviously we know we don't need a contract for now. What can, what would you tell them to do? What what are let's walk through some just even if they're just basic steps, let's give some action items for people to take. Besides the footnotes. Amy, you've been clear. <laughs> Read the footnotes. Read we got the footnotes. that. Yeah. Yeah. We got that. I think Teresa, it's just what you 
described. I think you need to just take a look at your files that you have and then make a determination whether or not this could be beneficial to you or not. And if so, then I would just recommend having a, a, a meeting with the notified body and just kind of getting an understanding where their head is at with regard to the guidance document and what they consider acceptable or not acceptable. I think it will vary amongst the different notified bodies of among different reviewers, but I think it's just important to note that this is a guidance document that it's it's official, so it is definitely something people can leverage. Wonderful. Anyone else? I think a subset of that would be if you decide it is applicable, you could also look at some of your devices that maybe you've had to reduce your indications. Could it be that some of those indications are salvageable so you didn't shelve the you didn't sunset the device but maybe you narrowed your indications is it something that possibly you could bring back some indications and would it be appropriate then to do pmcf studies on those indications i want to reiterate something very basic you know read the guidance document and ensure that you really get it because like i started off today's session saying there are some nuances and I wish some of the details that were in the earlier versions of that document, which didn't filter into the final version were still there. I think there are nuances that could get missed if you just read it, you know, as you read any other typical document, because there is a lot that you can read in between the lines, just like we were discussing, you know, you can, you can go through that flow chart and say, it's a new device. I'm in case four. I need a contract. But I, you know, I request that you look into it a little bit more carefully. Bring all considerations in. Do understand that sufficient clinical evidence per Article Two, Number Forty Eight, means data. Also means data from an equivalent device. That's a very important consideration to take. A uh, very important understanding to take into consideration when you decide what aspects of this applies. When you need a clinical investigation versus when you need a contract. So please be sure before anything, please be sure that you understand 2023-7 really well, including the nuances associated with it, then apply it to your product portfolio to understand what strategic differences or changes need to be made. Concurrently, if one or more of these situations apply, have a conversation with your notified body to understand where they stand as far as this guidance document is concerned, and then take it from there. And um, I also want to say this, it is a shameless plug for RQM Plus, but we can help, especially because it came from Amy. Uh, it is shameless, but it is true. And we're really looking forward to help. You stole my last line. No, I agree with you. We're here. If you have questions, please reach out to us. That's yeah. what we're here to do. This is this is what we love to do. And we would love to help you through this process. And I think we're, I think that that's going to be it for us today. I Stephen, hope you I'm can going to hear turn me. it back over to you. Can you hear me? Amazing. Okay. I did not anticipate that. We can that, hear so you. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, um, for being here uh, and, and during some of the tech issues we encountered. I think the platform was having issues. Uh, everybody seemed to report. I don't know. at and I actually out, think right? it's the world the today, actually. <laughs> I do. Um, I think no, it's the we world. sincerely appreciate yes, you being think, here. Um, yeah. And before I say anything further, I did drop a survey link into the chat. Uh, a bit ago. I did it a couple times. Please uh, take that if you can. It's really helpful to us. It'll only take 45 seconds uh, to complete it. We'd really appreciate it. Um, we'll send a follow-up email tomorrow with the recording 
uh, in a summary of the questions that we covered today. Uh, the email will contain the exclusive content we promised, which I've also, we also put in the chat a few times, that handout. Uh, we hope you find that helpful. Um, we'll also be publishing the show to the RQM Plus Device Advice podcast. Uh, we hope you'll subscribe to that. Uh, we frequently publish a wide variety of content there. You can find us by searching RQM Plus Device Advice. Um, finally, please follow RQM Plus on LinkedIn if you use it. Uh, you can easily find us by searching RQM Plus. So that's it. Thank you once more for being here. We really appreciate it and hope to see you again soon. Bye, y'all.